By the way, we are now a part of the Salesforce family. That's why we have a new home and a new look. Otherwise, you can expect the same great stories about success. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that it does contain some stories that can be hard to listen to. One of our guests talks about witnessing sexual assault and about other experiences of violence. There are two ways forward is coming up. Uh, Washington, D.C., late 80s, early 90s, crack epidemic was sweeping through the communities. Uh, it was uh, the beginning of the, you know, no, the war on drugs and the 94 crime bill. So people were being arrested for anything. All of these things were happening, which increased gun violence in my community. Uh, as a result, people in our community started carrying guns, mostly for protection. So a lot of I started losing a lot of friends. And then there was a lot of drug abuse. Chris Wilson grew up in a neighborhood that sometimes seemed like it offered only one path, a path almost perfectly designed to extinguish hope, a path full of fear, anger, and sorrow. There was a time when that was the only path Chris could see, too. But eventually, he found another way forward. And today, he's going to show you how to find that other way, even when it seems like the only option is to give up. All of us, I believe, have something in us. We have the potential to, to, to really um, live a beautiful life, but it's hard to take that first step. I'm Alexandra Samuel, and this is Waste No Potential, brought to you by Traction On Demand. The story I'm sharing with you today has some really visceral moments, but for now, Let me just preface it by talking about the idea driving this episode. So often the world presents a single way forward. It might begin with your parents or your teachers assuming that you're going to pursue a certain kind of education or a particular career. Maybe it's the expectation that you're going to get married, have kids, work a steady job. Then there's the one way that gets offered to you at your job. The assumption that you're going to run your business a certain way or go after a particular kind of customer. Agree with your boss. Position your brand and your products the same exact way you always have. Well, then one day you're sitting around that boardroom table or (laughs) these days staring at all the vases on the video call and you realize maybe there's another way. That's the light bulb moment that we're talking about today. That moment when you allow yourself to question the consensus, to swim upstream, the moment you say out loud, there's another way. The thing is, it's not always easy to spot that other way forward. Learning how to, that's often the key to unlocking our own latent potential. Today, we're going to hear an incredible story that shows what's possible when you hone that skill. When you find the strength to chart another path forward, even when everyone around you insists that there is no other way. Meet Chris Wilson. He's an entrepreneur and also the author of the book, The Master Plan. His story reveals how he built his own way forward in one of the most unlikely places, prison. And he's going to tell us how he did it. I'd love to just start at the beginning of your story. Sure. I often describe myself as a a hybrid 
having grown up in two different environments, I would stay with my mom on the weekends and I stayed with my grandmother uh, from Monday through Friday. My grandmother's neighborhood was uh, 100% African-American community. Uh, the only people that we saw who looked different from us uh, were the police officers who were, who were white. And it was very strange growing up because a lot of people in my neighborhood, I write about this, would say, you know, all oh, white people are out to get us. And on the weekends, I would, my mom would pick me up and we were, it was a very diverse neighborhood. You know, I always describe myself, still do, uh, as a mama's boy. I was always uh, under my mom and my mom going to the store, grocery shopping, whatever she was paying the bills. I would sit there, would be a bundle of my siblings. Uh, there were uh, uh, five of us. They would, they would tease me and get on me about this, but I didn't care. And so I, my mom taught me about entrepreneurship. It started with, uh, you know, candy and teaching me the law of scarcity about, you know, if you're the only person in the school who has blow pops, then you control the price. Now, don't make the price too high, but, you know, make sure you can turn a profit. And so she sat me down and we had a two dollar bag of blow pops and she helped me determine the price. And I would go to school uh, and sell these blow pops. And really, I just wanted the money so that I can buy like chocolate milk and cookies for like the ladies in, in class. But that's how it started. My mom teaching me about entrepreneurship. She drove me on dates to like the 99 cent movie theaters, uh, taught me how to be, uh, how to treat a woman and help me with my, my, my love notes. I mean, she just played a, 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 a critical role in my life. Then things began to fall apart for Chris. Just a heads up, the next few moments might be really painful to hear. And then my mom had met someone uh, who was a police officer, a DC police officer, and he was a crooked cop. He was like Denzel in Trainer Day, real smooth, but he just was up to no good. And then we were attacked. She was attacked by the police officer who he sexually assaulted her. And my mom never recovered from these injuries. They overprescribed her uh, pain pills, the opioids. She got addicted to them. Eventually it was heroin. And so she lost everything. And my mom never recovered. There was no food in the house. We just spiraled downhill. And for many, many years uh, as a youngster, I just didn't understand it. I was confused. How can someone that I love more than anyone say these mean things to me and, and turn on me? And it really destroyed uh, my mom and I's relationship. And inevitably, it destroyed my mom. Chris's world was swallowing him whole. And soon it would spit him out. One evening, one moment, set him on a path from which there seemed to be no return and no escape. So this was uh, the summer of 1996. I had lost, at this moment, five of my friends. My brother had been shot. My cousin was killed. My mom was, was spiraling downhill. And I was angry. I was angry that uh, as a young person and all the things that I was going through, that I didn't have an opportunity to live a normal life uh, as a young person. It was just, just funerals. It was, you know, doing drugs, a lot of, lot of violence in my household. And so around this time, uh, the person who attacked my mom had made uh, parole, the police officer, and started stalking my family. And in these early years, there was no law against stalking. This person had 
used to be a police officer, so he had a lot of connections. He was clever. And so he was breaking into the house and, and calling us and telling us one by one, we're going to pick you off and we're going to kill you. And so I started carrying a gun. One night uh, in, in June, I believe, I was going to walk to the store. And I came out the house to walk to the store. I saw two men across the street, didn't recognize them. They were staring at me. But I was like, oh, whatever. And I just kept walking, and they started following me. I said, I'm going to go somewhere. It was like a gas station. There's a lot of people out here, people getting gas, people going into the stores, people at the pay phones. I said, they won't bother me here. And I walked over there. They followed me. So I'm standing there and thinking about what to do. And they surround me, and they says, are you Chris? And I said, yeah. They said, we've been watching you. We've been watching your family. Don't think you're safe. Uh, any moment that we want to do something to you. And one of the guys tried to get behind me and jump on me. And I just pulled my gun, and I just fired some shots. And then I ran in one direction, and they turned and ran in another direction. And so what I found out a few weeks later that um, that I hit someone, and they had ran two blocks. I hit one of the people, one of the guys who came after me and he ran around a corner, two blocks and then died. And I was charged as an adult. I was 17. I was charged as an adult. And while I was in jail awaiting trial, uh, people came looking for my brother who was laying low with my, my biological father. And uh, they killed my father. And so my father passed away. Um, and his mom was there. His mom had to watch, you know, um, her son died. And then right after that, I got found guilty and I was sentenced to natural life in prison. So you've just lost, you've lost your freedom, you've lost your father. Um, you're living with your complicated feelings around this, this um, incident. And so you find yourself at Patuxent. And when when you're first there, it, it's, it, you describe yourself being very in a very dark place and not not with a lot of hope. Can you can you describe like that that mindset where you just cannot see a way out and it feels like that the only road before you has has no hope? I'll try to describe it. it, it I think it was a combination of a, a lot of traumatic experiences that I had at that point experienced in my life. Losing my friends, two who uh, died in my arms, being attacked, watching my mom. Uh, sexually assaulted in front of me, receiving a life sentence, calling home and no one accepting phone calls, no visits, no mail from people. I'm 118 pounds. Uh, and at this point, I just turned 18 and my life, I'm being told that my life is over. And it was very difficult because when I arrived at Patuxent, I saw a lot of older people who had been in there uh, for 30 and 40 years and had life sentences. And they were telling me, little Chris, just get comfortable because like this is your new home. And it was something inside of me. I know that I committed a crime and I was struggling with like accepting responsibility for what I did because these people came after me. But um, I couldn't be I couldn't and wouldn't accept that my life was over. And I just decided to believe that I could be free one day and that I could prove to myself and to everyone else that my life was redeemable and that I can contribute to society. And that was kind of the genesis of how I, I uh, started creating this master plan and, and transform my life. 
Chris coming up with his master plan was when he planted the seed for a second path. It was the moment that he reopened possibility and began to once again broaden horizons that had narrowed so terribly. In a moment, Chris will be back to explain what he did next. But first, to talk more about this idea that there are two ways forward, I want you to meet Manu Varma, the principal strategist at Traction On Demand. So I'm curious, when you hear that, and particularly as someone who has has watched people hit roadblocks, hit those impassable moments, what do you think is the secret to seeing that second path forward? What does is, what is Chris make you think about? That type of resilience, like where does that come from? I'm a big uh, believer in, you know, hardship. Looking at Chris, he's obviously experienced some hardship, and I think that's where he got the strength to be resilient and uh, coming from where he came from to be able to come up with that plan is is just truly remarkable. And uh... tell me, tell me what this idea, there are two ways forward. What does that mean at traction on demand? Yeah, so this whole concept of, uh, you know, two ways forward really kind of emanates from there's no passengers on this bus, right? Like everyone has to be on this ride. You either bought in or bought out. And I think it really is is woven to our DNA. Um, So either you kind of you're in it you get it, or you vehemently disagree with what we're doing and you're going to provide us with with some solutions. So it's always about being able to provide solutions and and not uh, just object. You have a choice. Every day you kind of visualize yourself walking over this line at the front door. In fact, we, we we actually did put a line of sand in the front door at one point. Hey, when you're coming in here, right, you are here because you're making a choice. You're either going to get her done or you're going to, to figure out a better way to do what you're doing today to, con- to continue to innovate. So that's kind of where the genesis started was really about you have a choice to be here. Uh, so do agree or don't agree and make it better. If you use that Japanese concept of ikigai, right, to what are you good at? What do I enjoy doing? What can you be paid for? And what does the world need? And that kind of confluence of those four things is what we're really trying to do. So going back to that two paths forward, I think ultimately the goal is how can we get to that concept of Ikigai at work? Uh, Because we spend so much time there. According to Manu, you can follow the herd or you can suggest an alternative. But either way, you should aim to be part of the solution. In some situations, that second, previously uncharted path can be a lifesaver. But it takes courage to go against the grain. Resilience, innovation, reaching out for your own sense of purpose. These are powerful drivers for finding a second path, which is just what Chris does next. When we paused his story, he was still in Patuxent Prison. But he's about to take control of his own destiny. You're listening to Waste No Potential, a new podcast about incredible stories of spotting untapped potential. The show is brought to you by the good folks at Traction On Demand, and I'm your host, Alexandra Samuel. If you're enjoying the podcast, don't forget to follow us wherever you're listening from. You can also find us at tractionondemand.com forward slash podcast. 
Manu just gave us a look at what it means at Traction when they say there are two ways forward. It's not just another version of two roads diverged in a yellow wood or if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. It's more like there are always multiple paths forward. It's working towards a solution that matters. When you don't buy into the plan that's being presented, recognize there's another option. It might not be obvious. It might take patience. It might take enormous resilience. But finding another path forward is up to you. And just recognizing what you don't like about the obvious path, even just finding the courage to be the person who says, you know, this just isn't good enough. It isn't okay. Well, that can be a powerful first step. So let's take that back to Chris's story. His clue that there could be a second path forward through his master plan began like this. The things that triggered this transformation. So it was my relationship with my grandfather who raised me Monday through Friday. And my grandfather, when I was incarcerated, he was battling skin cancer. And I sat with him for a long time, for months. And he shared stories with me about how he grew up in Mississippi and his siblings was killed by the Ku Klux Klan and how he fought in the Korean War. American paratroops take part in the biggest training exercises since the armistice. And how he came back home as a, as a soldier and people you know, spit in his face and it was hard to find work. But that he went back to school, got his Ph.D., became a social worker, started his own business. And he's telling me all these things while on his deathbed. And at the time, I was still carrying guns, smoking weed. And he told me, he says, I didn't go through all of this stuff to build this family for you to dishonor my name. And he says, I need you to come up with some type of plan to turn your life around. And at this point, I'm having this conversation with my grandfather. I'm already, I believe, uh, in prison and about to be sentenced or may have just been sentenced. And it's like, I, I promised him, I said, but grandpa, I don't know how I can do this. And he says, I've been hard on you your whole life, but I, I see it in you. You got to come up with some type of way to do it. It was after having a conversation with who a person who became uh, like a godbrother to me, Stephen Edwards, and he was studying computer code. He also had a life sentence. And he said that, you know, I want to get out of prison. I'm going to start a software company. I'm going to make millions of dollars. I'm going to buy my dream car. He knew a car he wanted. He had it all mapped out. I sat in the corner after talking to him. It's like, well, I got to I gotta come up with my own bucket list or master plan. And so I went back to my cell and I took out a bunch of blank sheets of paper. I started saying to myself, like, who do I want to be? 40 years old. Like, what does that look like? And I said, I know I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to work for myself. I want to have a business that uh, helps people or helps my environment. I didn't know what the term social entrepreneurship back then, but I wanted to be a social entrepreneur. I wanted to learn Spanish. I wanted to travel around the world. I hadn't been anywhere. I wanted my dream car, the black Corvette convertible with nice rims and the sound system. Putting words to paper was Chris inventing a new future for himself. One of those things was starting his very first business while still in prison, even when the system around him did not exactly welcome new ideas, like the one he was about to come up with. I wonder if you could tell us about that business, and I'm still mad. <laughs> Me too. I'm still mad too, actually. So when, when I was incarcerated, I think it was around 2001, 
my cell buddy and I had a subscription to uh, Popular Science. And I remember us reading this article about digital cameras. We had Polaroids at the time and I think 35 millimeter cameras. And I said, look at this, a digital camera. We could print pictures, as many as we want. And I said, we should get one of these cameras. They were like a thousand bucks back then or whatever. And I said, we should get one of these cameras and start a business. We can create a couple jobs and like train up some photographers. And then we can we can sell picture tickets and, and create a fund and use that money to do things around the prison, uh, recreational equipment, books and lab, you know, just ping pong tables. And so we put it all together and pitched it to the administration. And I said, I need you to pay me double uh, what you pay me every day. And I was getting paid a dollar thirty five. So I was like, you know, you double that. And uh, I want to be able to go to every recreation center. And then I want to be able to hire some people. And they agreed to it. And it just started to flourish instantly. We went from $600 to, in a few months, having $12,000 in our account. And then the following year, we had $40,000 in the account. And I started going to all the housing units and talking to influential people in the housing units and saying, what is it going to take for you guys to really embrace change? And what is it that I can do for you? And so I, I was working on this deal inside the prison of if I could get basic cable wired up throughout the day rooms and then your individual sales was you guys like agree to like stop stabbing and robbing and the housing you know, at least reduce it significantly and, and got many guys is like if you could do that like of course it would be no trouble in my housing unit and so we had the money to pay for it and that's when the institution decided to seize the the money in my account and they brought uh, security cameras for the prison. And they thought that was funny, too. When I asked for the money, they says, you spent it. I said, no, I didn't. They says, you brought the cameras. Thank you. <laughs> and so I was upset, but I was also proud that I was able to create a business to generate some revenue. So I knew I had the sauce at that moment. But it was it was bittersweet for sure. Even though Chris's earnings were seized to install more security cameras at the prison, that experience still birthed something amazing, a newfound passion for social entrepreneurship. Over the next few years, he'd continue to work on his master plan, pursue a college education, go to therapy, and so on. All the while, he continued to appeal his case for a reduced sentence. I had put in... Uh, five times for uh, a motion for modification of sentencing based off of good behavior, and I was denied five times. I was I was putting in all of the work on a day to day, studying in therapy and staying out of trouble, but it just wasn't taken. Like the universe was still like I still was so uncertain, and I pulled up my master plan. I said, you know, I need a sign to know that like all this hard work. I need to know if it's going to pay off or I'm just going to grow old, a well-educated black man in prison and, and die here. And I did that for two weeks. And for some reason, my lawyer came to see him and he says, the courts, they had a change of heart and you got a court date. That's when I came clean and I spoke to the judge and I talked about, you know, how I changed. I accepted responsibility for what I did and talked about what I would do uh, once released if given a second chance. And my sentence was reduced. And so um, I can't rule out some divine intervention in my life. 
And I even asked my judge many years later when she was walking me to my car to confirm that I actually brought the black Corvette convertible. And I asked her, I says, why'd you risk your career to let me out of prison, Your Honor? And she said, you wrote me these letters over the years. And one day, one night I just woke up uh, and I just felt different. And I just decided I was going to risk it, but I wanted to hear from you. And when you spoke to me, I believed you. The criminal justice system in the United States is a relentless force. Once it pulls you in, it's hard to see any other path, any other possibilities. That's what makes it so extraordinary that Chris was not only able to see another way forward, but also find a way to actually pursue it, to make it a reality. After having been in prison for 16 years, he was finally out. And he had his master plan tucked in his arms, ready to propel him forward. I did have it, coffee stains and all on it. Ah, it was... It was scary, but uh, it started raining. I had $50. I thought people were crazy. I saw everybody talking to themselves, and I I didn't know about the earpieces and, like, speakerphone. And I spent the first night on YouTube. I was so amazed that I can type in anything to learn how to do something or a video, and it just pops up. And so I spent the whole night just doing it. (laughs) It's such an incredible story. But we can't expect everyone to have Chris Wilson-level resilience, to have the strength to see another way forward when there's so much standing in the way. So what can we mere mortals do to find that other way, to take the first steps, to turn our ideas into solutions? Here's Manu. You know, what what do you do when you see somebody who is maybe hanging back, you can tell they haven't fully bought into the first path. How do you encourage people to look for that second path? Well, I think for me is it's really about uh, storytelling, right? And and leading by example to show people, you know, there's uh, there's an element of fear there. What's what's holding you back? And trying something new is is, is scary. But showing that experimentation is 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 allowed, and by telling them stories of showing that this has happened to to me, this has happened to other people. Take a leap, knowing that you we're here to to still to still grab you. You know, when you're so fixated on one thing, right? Do you just you completely block yourself up unknowing and unwittingly to everything else around you, especially through the tough times, right? I think that it's very easy to be an integritous leader when things are really happy and things are good, profits are good, we're paying up bonuses. But it's when times are really shitty. And I think that's where integrity really comes into play. You know, it's not a calm sea that makes a good sailor. And I use that all the time when I talk about culture, right? And so what I always say to leaders, I'm like, man, Show them that you're human. Lead with your humanity. You can make mistakes. You will. You can fall down, and you will fall down. And share those those mistakes, as again, that will give you so much credibility towards your your integrity as a leader. And that you can go to a million leadership development courses, but you're still not going to get it unless you're. If you've lost your humanity, um, you're kind of you're dead in the water. Chris was now in a world totally different from the one he knew. So what has he done with his years as a returning citizen of the United States, which is his preferred way of describing formerly incarcerated people? I had a contracting company, uh, Barclay Investment Corporation, where I vested in people who were mostly impacted by the criminal justice system, providing job opportunities, wraparound services, 
over the the past couple of years, I would say the past six years, I became a visual artist, sort of by accident. I uh, started thinking about the power of, of stories and some of the things that people would tell me when I had my construction company and furniture company and was working, doing workforce development work, was that maybe the best use of your time is to help inspire and groom leaders. And I didn't know what that meant. And I was like, well, what does that mean? It says people gravitate towards you. People come to you for advice and you seem to, to, to help people and give them the inspiration. And then they go do something amazing. And I started to realize that I could do this through film. So I started doing a few short films uh, that, that went viral, uh, went through all the film festivals, uh, Tribeca Film Festival, South by Southwest, Sundance, and telling powerful stories about issues, solitary confinement. But when I would get off work, I would go back to these artists' studio and they would be playing house music and they would paint and they would start telling me about the meaning of the art and the power of it. And I fell in love with it. And so I started, they asked me to think about things that I cared about. And it was criminal justice reform and societal injustices. And I started making these beautiful, colorful paintings. And I started traveling around the world. I went to Italy to work and study under a famous sculptor. And I went to Paris and, you know, Spain and just different places and painting and selling my art. You don't always have to start your own business to be an entrepreneur. You can be an entrepreneur. You can work for a company and think like an entrepreneur and move up in the company. But it's something empowering about really thinking about the problems of the world and creating something to uh, eliminate the problem, but also help, you know, help yourself and others like you know buy homes and lift themselves up and so especially coming from where I come from having grown up in the prison system there's so much that's stacked against you so much discrimination of you want to get this dream job or you want to uh, advance in this career and they won't even open the door to let you in to consider you and so I think you know as an entrepreneur you can you can create that own door or you can build that path if you were to think back to that moment 25 years ago when when you ha- you were in that you know, first at Patuxent, not yet seeing the master plan, not yet seeing the second path, is there something you would say to yourself that, that would have let that kid know that there was more opportunity ahead than he was seeing in that moment? It's, it's interesting. It's a really interesting question because, you know, when I was... In prison and growing up, my family gave me more chores than anyone. They made me do stuff I didn't want to do. They sent me on on trips to New York, and I, I got on the chess team, which I didn't want to do, and I started competing, and they, they made me do stuff, and I complained the whole time. And when my grandfather was was dying, he, he was still hard on me. I'm disappointed in you. Kept reminding me that I am trying to help you find your purpose. I think I know what it is. And so all, all of these things forced me to really think about what is it that I'm meant to do? And I think what I would say to my younger self, you know, maybe it's, it, would, it would probably be some tough love, but, you know, I would tell the younger version of myself that, that you are competent, you are strong, you are a loving person and, and get up and put the work in. You know, I, I, when I started my master plan, I was upset about how many years I wasted. Once I started looking back, I said, you know, all throughout high school, 
I, I, I just wasn't really hearing what everyone was trying to tell me. And I would say to the younger, younger version of myself, like, get up. You can live a beautiful life. Um, you just gotta, you gotta get up and do it. It starts today. Today, my guests were Chris Wilson, author of The Master Plan and founder of the company Cuttlefish, as well as Manu Varma, the principal strategist attraction on demand. You can support the work Chris is doing by going to the chriswilsonfoundation.com or follow him on his website at chriswilson.biz and help him on his personal mission to get his amazing book into every prison in the United States. The proceeds from his book and the art that he makes go towards helping individuals and communities affected by the criminal justice system. I'm Alexandra Samuel, and this is Waste No Potential, brought to you by Traction On Demand with production support from JAR Audio. I want you to imagine a leader, someone who instantly comes to mind when you think about making big changes, making important decisions, taking charge. I often think of politicians or CEOs or people who lead huge social movements. But what about people you don't see? Some leaders aren't the ones you expect. Instead, they're leading the charge from behind the scenes. Join us next time when we'll bring you a story of intrigue, determination, the movement of millions of dollars, and leading from behind. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Until then, thanks for listening. The Waste No Potential podcast was created by Traction On Demand, a company acquired by Salesforce in April of 2022. All Waste No Potential podcasts can now be found at salesforce.com slash resources slash podcasts.